Welcome to LifeSight AI, the podcast series brought to you by Cypro and hosted by me, Nick Mahoney. This series looks to shine a light on the key developments of AI within the life science industry. Following on from the successful roundtable Cypro hosted in 2020, we aim to bring cross collaboration between common projects and to help promote the use of AI in life sciences. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome back to another episode of LifeSci AI, the podcast series. And this podcast uh, episode will dovetail really nicely with the episode um, from two weeks ago with Ben Panther at Blackford Analysis. So if you haven't um, already listened to that one, I, I urge you to go and listen to that one as well. But today we have the honour of being joined by Jurian uh, van Duflen from uh, IDENTS, who is the Chief Business Strategy um, Officer. And I hope I've <laughs> pronounced your name correctly, <laughs> as close as, as possible. But welcome along to the podcast. It's an honour to have you. Thank you, Nick. So just for people who don't, um, aren't familiar with your work uh, and the work of Ident, just give everybody an introduction um, quite quickly into sort of what you, what you, what you do at Ident and what your role is and sort of as a co-founder as well. Okay, yeah. So um, at Aidens, uh, a company that we started in late 2015, we're developing AI-enabled software solutions for the medical uh, field. And we initially started developing applications where we use deep learning and machine learning uh, for automated analysis of medical images with the purpose to uh, basically automate tasks for radiologists and, and output reports that they could use for their final um, diagnostic reporting about the medical image that they had to, to, to review. So we started in 2016 exploring several concepts in this space, um, looking at MR imaging, X-ray imaging, and we ended up with CT uh, chest imaging. And uh, what we quickly found out is that you need to focus on doing one thing very well uh, and not build a, a broad platform with all kinds of applications that have um, sort of little uh, depth and thereby little value. So what we've developed is a first solution initially uh, for the automated detection of pulmonary nodules, which are very small spots in the lungs that could be a sign of early stage lung cancer. And the reason why we developed this uh, was that uh, during our first validation of this uh, product or the different concepts basically that we looked at is that um, there was a clear recognition of a, a certain frustration uh, and also uh, uh, a recognition of the, the, the errors that were made in this, in this uh, particular field. So there were radiologists who said, you know, I have to find those dots and I have to measure them and I have to look at previous scans if those small spots are there as well and then I have to see if they're growing or not. Um, and, and that's a task that's pretty time consuming and tedious for humans. So if uh, uh, an AI software solution could help uh, facilitate that part, that was interesting to them. So that's in 2016 when we said, okay, you know, we're gonna put the other IDs that we're working on, 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 on uh, in the fridge and we're gonna work on this uh, solution. So it took us roughly three years uh, from a company of, of basically uh, three, four people in 2016, all the way to today, 40 plus people to develop that solution, clinically certify it, uh, and then put it in the market. 
so in 2019, when we thought we were ready to put it into the market, we figured out that the medical um, sort of IT domain or space is very complex. So it took us another year to actually build a platform so we could connect it uh, to the market and actually offer it to uh, radiologists. Uh, so by the end of 2019, we actually started uh, selling the first solutions to, to our early uh, customers. And now recently, uh, we uh, started to, to, to um, deploy this to um, uh, very big uh, hospital networks, among others in the UK, but also throughout Europe. And uh, hopefully soon, there will be some very interesting announcements that we can do um, about uh, European-wide deployments that we're going to start working on. Yeah, and your yeah. and your other question about what my role is within the company. So I was one of yeah. the co-founders uh, in the background in software engineering. So we didn't know anything about medical when we started this company. <laughs> so the funny the funny example I always use when when starting Aidens is we we actually had a computer in front of us with Google, and then we picked up the phone and started calling radiologists and radiology companies to figure out what the potential opportunities were in this space. And when they started to talk about all kinds of medical uh, definitions and terms, then we were like, okay, I don't know what this person is talking about. Let's quickly Google it. So <laughs> then we were, uh, okay, yeah, we understand. And then quickly Googling the other thing you were talking about. Yeah. And that's how this actually started. Wow. Wow. That's, that, that's fascinating. So you, you had no knowledge or ideas. So, so why did you pick medical then? Because I mean, you could have picked in 20, 2016, 2015, 2014, probably when you were thinking about ideas, right? There's loads of things. AI was a sexy term around then, um, especially with an imaging. You could have done um, robotics, self-driving cars. You could have worked in probably insurance or anything. Why, why medical? So we actually looked at things like uh, insurance as well. Um, my co-founder, Mark Young, he looked at applications in um, uh, geodata, so using imaging oh, yeah. from satellites, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but we found the domain very interesting, as in challenging, you know, can you do something with computers um, for the human good, so to speak? Yeah. Um, and I actually saw a lot of developments in my previous job in this space. So I, I ran a business incubator uh, in the academic uh, centers in Amsterdam, where we had 15 uh, academic centers participating in a business incubator. And there were a lot of developments from the medical uh, academic centers in data analysis, big data. You know, that was, those were the big hyped up terms yeah. back then, but nothing really going uh, out of the, the research um, sort of stages into the market. And that's where I was like, okay, let's try and do this because there seems to be some, some, some interest um, and let's figure out if we can build a company around that. So we explored that um, and my role in that was really um, looking at the different uh, sort of um, validation steps on how to, to build a product and get the input for, from the market, but also how to uh, actually grow the company with external funding through VC uh, funding. So my role has been on the operational side, you know how it starts with um, you know, ordering coffee and keeping the office running <laughs> to raising uh, 10 million and now trying to close um, yeah. some interesting deals with uh, bigger corporations. There's a few, there's a few bits in between there from going from ordering a coffee to <laughs> closing a few deals. <laughs> yes. So, but that, that's, you know, as, as, as a, as a young company and, and yeah. people within a young company, that's the diversity of the, the tasks yeah. that you're dealing with. For sure. For sure. So what, what did success look like for you in, in 2016? When you were sat there ringing up radiologists with Google in front of you, what did you, you said it was, you kind of wanted to have using computer science for the greater good, for the, the greater human good, but what did success look for you, look like for you guys back then? 
So I think what we were looking for back then, not knowing where this could go, right? Because that, you don't know where it goes when you start a company. What we were looking for was, can we make um, healthcare cheaper and better at the same time? Because mm -hmm. we all know that healthcare costs are increasing and increasing and increasing, and there's no, there's, there's basically no way out of that unless you're going to scale down healthcare. Yeah. So are there ways of better utilizing the current uh, workforce of, of medical specialists uh, by letting them focus on the more important tasks, the human interaction, uh, yeah. the very complex tasks that computers will not be able to do. And can we automate those parts that are simple, tedious, uh, repetitive, and take that work out of their hands, basically? So that's why we expected that we could develop solutions rather quickly to automate these tasks. Little did we know, though, about the complexity of all kinds of medical <laughs> diagnostics back then. Yeah. So success was automation of tasks for medical specialists so that they could focus on the complex work and the human being in the whole care process. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's where it all started. I think we learned our lessons that it, you know, is very, very difficult to to just automate tasks you have to also look at all the work around it uh, the, 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 it's not only about diagnostics and interpretation of data it's also about workflow it's also about day-to-day yeah. uh, -day work that people are dealing with where you're trying to fit in with some new technology and eventually yeah. it comes down to changing attitudes and change management as well with these kinds of technologies because people use the new technology but their practice in some way will also change as a result of using that new technology. So there was a lot of um, lessons, there were a lot of lessons learned over the past years. And I think what we've really discovered is that, you know, to add value with machine learning, AI, whatever definition you use for it, we start to look more at it like, how can you have an impact with intelligent software on the workflow of doctors and the outcomes for patients? And that's where you can, uh, as we said before, you can bro go broad with a lot of different applications. But what we yeah. have discovered is that you have to go deeper into a care pathway with technology and try to automate as much as possible in that pathway um, mm. to make the life of clinicians uh, easier and the outcomes for patients better. I see. So do you, is, there an, is there a point now when you look back and you think we made the best choice? Or are there times when you think, God, Wish we wish we'd gone down the autonomous driving route, or wish we'd gone down the robotics route. Do you still think every time you you made the right choice now? Oh no, for sure. Uh, it keeps questioning <laughs> every day. There's like, should I have ever gone into healthcare? Because this space is is not yeah. technology wise. It's not the most. Not only the, it's not just difficult. It's also everything around it. Right? You're yeah. dealing with human beings in the end. Um, yeah. And human beings, as in you have to have the right accuracy of your solution. Otherwise the decisions for that uh, person's uh, treatment or, or follow-up diagnostics are gonna be incorrect. So you're dealing with a lot of complexity around that, but you're also dealing with an industry that basically has no time to innovate. And it, as in no time, as in they don't have the bandwidth to integrate new solutions. They don't have the yeah. time to, you know, try new solutions because they have already have very little time to actually focus on the patient. So everything that comes next to it is yeah. just an extra burden on their work. Mm. So I think the, the, the biggest challenge that we've faced is really trying to, to integrate the solution initially in, in the workflow and getting it adopted. 
yeah. then trying to sell it into the industry because you know we're still adding an extra cost right now which we think down the line uh, will have an impact on uh, earlier detection of lung cancer and the costs thereby uh, will be reduced for for the healthcare system but trying to figure out all that all those models and, and how that works in both workflow integration priorities yeah. within hospitals budgets within hospitals it was quite a painful process but i think yeah. at this point and, and this year is really is really a, a shift uh, that we're seeing the last quarter we actually got so much demand that we have a whole backlog of, of, of mm. tens mm. of hospitals now that want to start using our system yeah yeah and that's that's something that we the final question i asked um ben panto in the last episode was what has been the effect of of covid on on the widespread implementation of AI in, in, in healthcare systems across the world. He effectively said that we as an industry have, have only just caught up with the rest of the world with implementation of cloud systems and different software platforms and such. But notice that you said that you were ready to go in 2019, but then you had a, a year of, ah, oh, we've got to now create something to implement a software, have a software platform. Do you do you think that was one of your biggest challenges? Because you said about validation and implementation of it into the workflow. Was that your biggest challenge at, at Idens? Was that was that it? Yeah. So <clears throat> integration into the complex IT environment of hospitals is is definitely one of the biggest challenges we're facing. Um, and then the other one is is convincing. Um, the users and eventually the buyers about the business case of this technology. Right. Because I wrote an interesting blog post about that, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, where we focus on how to build that business case for your hospital. And each country has their own dynamics in reimbursement. Yeah. Uh, each country has their own stakeholders for who the value actually applies when you implement these solutions. So figuring that out and, and per country uh, making those cases next to the technical technical integrations is is a is a huge challenge as well mm -hmm. so our users they might not even be the commercial or the the, the business case for of beneficials for beneficiaries of this technology yeah but the health system might be so who's then going to pay for it um, is the hospital going to pay for it is the radiology group going to pay for it or is the health insurer you know those are the things that we still have to sort of get right Right now, what you see is that there's a lot of earlier adoption by, by several hospitals and hospital groups, and they see the benefit themselves. Yeah. They don't need to be convinced necessarily by you know the numbers and the research. Mm. But this is not something I feel that has been affected by, by COVID very much. I see, I see. Okay, so but you, you mentioned about the business case there though. So how complex people, people don't understand the sort of the reimbursement models of medical devices across different locations how complex is the different locations across across europe and america in terms of country by country yeah so just taking the higher sort of uh, view here first looking at europe versus the us the first interaction that we're seeing is that this technology can be used for different purposes in, in, yeah. in, in uh, the different systems. For example, in the US, it's more seen as a tool to find early stage lung cancers and then drive them as quickly through uh, the treatment pathway, ensuring that um, you know the right steps are taken for the patient and making sure that the patient gets treated early. But at the same time, it's uh, a means for hospitals to drive their uh, revenue. 
So that's yeah. where in the US, of course, the whole healthcare system is completely different than in Europe. Um, so they're looking more at this tool instead of a cost saver as something that can help them um, acquire more patients. Because more patient, of course, for hospital is it's a value driver. Now, and there, there's always a question, is that a good or a bad thing? In the end, for the patient, being detected early in lung cancer is a good thing because that allows uh, a treatment with curative intent versus late stage detection when a patient yeah. basically gets treated for a couple of months and then treatments don't have any effect anymore. Um, but you know, there's there, there's a different way of looking at it from a, an American system where, and then again, like I said it before, it's more focused on increasing the amount of early stage patients due to yeah. uh, a, a revenue drive. Well, in um, Europe, you're looking at it from a different perspective where everything's focused on cost savings and cost reduction. Um, that's where the cost reduction is actually some of the element, what I feel more of an element than, than the actual treatment effect. Um, so they'll first look at, okay, can we actually reduce cost with this? And then mm. the question around the patient uh, comes up. So this is on a higher level when we're talking on, on sort of like, uh, you know, continental approaches. Yeah. But if you're going to look at, for example, the Netherlands, our home market where we started, that's where uh, we have hospitals um, that um, have independent radiology groups working in those hospitals. And they basically are the owners of their own their own uh, profit and loss. So they're looking um, at purchasing these solutions really as can we save time with it and can we improve the quality of our service with it? Well, some of the hospitals, um, they don't have actual budget. So the radiologists themselves decide to purchase this software out of their own pocket because they see that it doesn't only help them read scans faster, but they also recognize that they detect cancers earlier and faster. So for them, it is really an efficiency gain. You know, if you're going to add costs significantly on top of, um, you know, well, the, the current practice, then it's a hard buy for them. But if you can show both an efficiency gain and an equality improvement for earlier stage detection, then the radiologists are even willing to pay out of their own pocket. Mm. So that was a surprise to us when we learned that, because what you expect is that they'll go to the, you know, the insurer or the payer to get the funding. Um, but those payers and insurers, they are, not, they are not ready for this yet. So we have started working in the Netherlands with several yeah. insurers and have the first discussions on uh, basically building a reimbursement model for this so that eventually those radiologists that are paying for the solution themselves now can bring this on to the, the bigger oh, yeah. healthcare system. I see. But when, when you say the insurance and the insurers and the payers aren't ready, in the Netherlands. Why is that? Can they not see the long-term advantage of it? Or is there the data not, that is the data in the evidence not there yet? What's what's stopping them? Yeah, it's a bit of the chicken and the egg. As a startup, you need <laughs> to be able to, you know, um, pay your bills as soon as possible. But then um, how do you do that without getting reimbursed? So you try and push your first solution as quickly as possible. Uh, while the reimbursement uh, requires years of evidence to show, hey, this actually has an effect, effect on, on health economics or, or uh, large-scale health uh, outcomes. So what we've done is we've sort of built a quick sort of model where we could put the current software in the market um, against the price that at least we can show some traction and at least that, that, that pays our bills. Yeah. Uh, but we need to go to a, a value-based pricing where we can actually show, you know, this 
software for hospital techs, two or three patients that manually by radiology simply not be possible and not be possible because the radiologists aren't doing their work properly. It's because people can't do these measurements and they can't do these detections that computers can do. Right, and therefore, this has a bigger and a better impact on, on early uh, stage lung cancer detection. I see. So, you, so your first step has been, let's, let's go down the efficiency route to, to, to sort of have the radiologist buy in because that's, a, that's an easy stakeholder or an easier stakeholder for you to, to get hold of and get the reimbursement to keep the lights on per se and to have enough development and have enough cash inflow so you can keep development running. But what you're looking for now is can we create a system where they're actually better at detecting the what you're looking for than the radiologists it, depending mm -hmm. on what it is you're looking for if, if it's if it's ct scans if it's MRI data, no matter what it is in your use case if we're taking this on a sort of a more global view of medical imaging that's the next step that's the next use case the next business case to get the insurers and the payers on side as it were yes so you, because of the, the the data that they require it takes several years of um, actual evidence of using that system so that's where you can't get the data without putting it in the hands of the radiologists, but then mm. you can't give it away for free for five years either because you need to keep the business running, right? So that's yeah. the process we are now. We have the adoption, we have scalability in, in the use of the system, and now we can start demonstrating that health impact. You know, And if you can detect two or three earlier stage lung cancers per hospital, that would mm. do an give an instant return of the software development based just on treatment costs or um, quality of life years gained due to this software. But that's the evidence that we have to start developing now. I see. And that's all you you haven't, have you done like um, research um, uh, collaborations with that as well? Have you gone down that route or are you just going down the, we're going to put it into radiologist only sort of route in, in Netherlands and I don't know if you're in NHS or if you're in America now as well. Is that the route you've gone down? Yeah, so we actually got uh, awarded uh, funding from the NHS to deploy the software at scale and develop this kind of cost effectiveness evidence over the next two to three Brilliant. years. Uh, and in the Netherlands, that's where uh, we're now having the first discussions with health insurers to and, and the, the health authorities to see how can we build this evidence so that it can be adopted for standard reimbursement in, in, in any CT scan that's being performed. Yeah, sure, sure, awesome. And, and that's similar, some study that we're now discussing in, in the US with uh, one of the largest health uh, uh, yeah. management organizations there. Oh, awesome, okay. And then on a, on a sort of, I don't, know, don't want to put this sort of Europe versus America in your mind, but what do you prefer? sort of a patient driver model like like america or a cost effective model in uh in europe so what do you mean with the first one because i'm not sure so like it, like a, like it, your, your medical device is being used by the hospitals to gather more patients in because they're more they're more effective so like you said it's, it's a patient driver as it were that's their first and that's their first um sort of qualification of is this device something we're going to use okay does it increase the amount of patients we can have or in Europe, where it's a, okay, does this reduce the cost of healthcare? Which one do you prefer, both on a, maybe a business point of view and maybe on a um, principled personal point of view? 
Of course, from a principal point of view, it's all about the patient, right? Um, sometimes you tend to forget that when you're looking at pictures and you, you have an AI going over it, but there's a human being with lung cancer on the other side that we don't know uh, yeah. uh, what that personal situation is. So no matter the system, that's why the technology is relevant. Yeah. So you see that often in our team discussions when we're looking at scans where we uh, are, are developing the software on like, hey, this is a real human being. You know, don't see this as just an image. Yeah. So the human factor is, is something that is independent of the market. Um, so no matter the system, no matter the sort of financial incentives, those are all the same. Eventually, um, people go into this business to also have, a, have an impact on a positive impact on, on humans. Yeah. Now, from, from a business perspective, we've only got our experience in uh, Europe so far, um, and it's quite uh, the, the, the challenge to, to get to this point that we were discussing, right? Developing the evidence for the value-based care, where it's not only about efficiency, but it's really about the impact on patients' lives and therefore the cost that we could potentially save. In the US, the first experience that we have is that it's much easier from their systems uh, to see if this system can be sold and be, be, be used by hospitals because they're looking at it from that uh, patient driver perspective. So from right. a business perspective, um, I understand why a lot of companies decide to go to the US first because the dynamics there are more in favor of um, getting it reimbursed or paid for. I see, okay. So um, both of them still have this, the, the, the same end in terms of patient care. Exactly. Um, but the, the, the business model, is it, does it lend itself more to be, probably doesn't though, but does it, does it lend itself to be more cowboyish though in America? And it was very difficult in healthcare, sort of everyone trying to just, just, just get as much money as possible. Is the European model a bit more conservative, a bit more, um, social, social democracy type. That's what I'm trying to get to here. Maybe <laughs> versus it's a, a capitalist model versus a social democratic model potentially i think in europe it depends also which country you're looking at because mm. there are the similar dynamics as you have in the us for example um yeah and then, and i know it's juicy to have this discussion in, in the podcast <laughs> of cowboys versus social capitalism <laughs> um I, I would try to stay away from that because i don't want to yeah. you know i don't want to sort of put people in that kind of corner um you know, yes, you can make a lot of money in healthcare if you're a specialist, but people still start, let's put it like this, most people still start from a perspective that they can have positive impact on human lives. Yeah. Um, and that's also why we started to look at this. Yeah. Um, we didn't start this business because we wanted to be, you know, the, the people that make a lot of money in this space, because the chances are you're not even going to make it to that point. There's yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of failure in this space as well. And I think by the approaches that we've taken, by really having close collaborations with clinical specialists on how to develop a product and validate it, yeah. um, not making big cowboy claims, which have been made in this space a lot over the past years, but just staying real and practical. I think that's, that's how we started in this business. That's how we're now becoming successful as well. Um, I think the whole cowboy approach eventually will just, you know, um, bite you in the ass eventually. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I think when you, the, the stuff that you, you market across and the information you have, you very much have it from a, a radiologist's perspective of, of the product. 
And it's, it's interesting that the first people, when you said, okay, when we sat down, we had Google open, the first people you called were radiologists um, to understand what they need, to understand how you can help them rather than trying to implement something on a market per se. So do you think that was a real fundamental success of, of your product in the fact that you were patient-led, but actually you were radiologist-led, you were the user-led? Yeah, because um, you, you've seen a lot of sort of um, health applications and mobile apps uh, over the past years as well, right? That's one one sort of digital health kind of approach what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, this is, I think, there's there's a lot of hype there as well. And what we really try to do is start small, have the discussion with those that understand the clinical challenges and not just build an application that you could throw out there on an app store and, and start using. Because healthcare is difficult by itself. You need a lot of domain knowledge before you can help solve a problem, it being it in the in the consumer space in health or in in in, in more the you know the clinical uh, specialist space. So I think our approach with having the user drive where our products go is still the one that makes us successful. We've started in imaging, but we've after deploying the system, we've got all kinds of requests from that same sort of clinician group on how our technology could support other parts of the clinical pathway. And now we're talking about the clinical pathway um, that's where the patient comes in as well. It's not just the radiologist or the lung specialist, yeah. not, not, not only the physicians. But now they've, we're also getting questions, okay, how can we, during this whole process of lung cancer treatment, involve the patient? Can we integrate a, a patient engagement app? Um, oh, and, and that's where we now start to see the specialist crossover into um, sort of the end patient, where it's still relevant uh, to... to to have the main drivers being the clinicians because they understand all the, you know, all the complexities around lung cancer care. Mm. But this whole digital health thing where we are dealing with apps and mobile phones and, and, and that kind of stuff, it now starts to become one in, in where we yeah. started with, uh, with a clinician focus. I see. So you said that previously though, you said you want to do something really, do one thing and do it really, really well. Um, so now you're talking about different um, sort of the, the whole clinical pathway around around lung cancer for patients, but is is now where you potentially would branch out? Is it the different areas of of the patient pathway, or is it into different areas of medical imaging? Are you going to go around a, a patient pathway point of view or a medical imaging point of view? No, we're really going in depth of the uh, the pathway. Um, and okay, then cool. when you do that well, um, the, when you really want to scale it up into other areas, I think you need to build a complete team, fo team focusing on that next so problem. You, I see. So now you've got the so you've got the diagnostics um, sort of set up and going. We know we're going from there within getting insurance and the payers on site. So you mentioned applications in there and and what the patients would use. Talk a little bit more about if you can in so much, as much detail as maybe you're allowed to in terms of what that could look like for the future of, uh, of not just, just the guidance, but other medical imaging companies where they could go next, really. Yeah, so <clears throat> just without in too much detail about our own case, I think if you yeah. look at imaging, imaging is often the start of a diagnostic and treatment pathway. So what's 
behind that imaging part where you could use software for follow-up checking if a treatment is responding, if, if a person is responding to a treatment, for example, or collecting more data and have AI collect that data and analyze it uh, so that you can either compare certain patients with others to see what potential outcomes there are relevant to, to, to this patient that's similar. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I think adds more value than detecting certain things on an, on, on an image and drawing a circle around it to say, hey, there's something you should look at. Because if you look down further down the pathway, there's a lot of complexities often in collecting more diagnostic information than applying that diagnostic information to certain clinical guidelines or decision trees. Um, and then those decision trees or guidelines are not always up to date in every hospital. So if those are things that you can, you know, automate with software that will have a positive impact on, on the work and the outcomes for the patients. So that's where, and that's what, that's the direction that we're taking. And we, we, we more and more believe in that that will be the best approach because that's a, it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a thing that we're now writing a blog post about as well. Like we need more software engineering than AI in healthcare because yeah. AI, as I, as I, I mentioned several times before in other interviews and in, in blog posts as well, I don't think AI will take over the work of clinic, clinicians in the next 10 to 15, even 25 years. We will be assistive in certain tasks. Yeah. We will take away the tedious and time consuming repetitive stuff, but the real complex stuff is still up to the clinicians to make decisions about. But to help them make those decisions, you often need to optimize the workflow where you need to collect all kinds of data that they now have to pull from different systems and, and analyze manually. You know, if you can start facilitating that process, you don't even have to do all kinds of sexy stuff with AI. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Then it's really about the, 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 the plumbing of, of the software that's needed to, to bring systems together. So I think that's where still a lot of opportunities are available. And that's what we're now looking at as well. So building the, the, the technology to pull in all kinds of information and then eventually on top of that, apply more smart AI solutions. So it's about now, I don't know if, is it, is it, is it maturing is the right, it's the right word or just having that, that, that level of, of software scalability for, for your system. And for other for other companies now to, to take it on and be be user friendly, be have it all have automation at the heart, um, have the correct decisions being made not only by the the system but by the user, be it a radiologist, be it whoever, to enable them to like you say work on the most complex diagnostics, rather than sort of having that. Um, tedious repetitive task and that's something that I wanted to ask you is is it in in healthcare I noticed that there is something of, of, of false positives and that's sort of your accuracy level of there's you get as you get a small amount of false positive as possible is it is it is it always the case that you'll always go for false false positives rather than obviously false negatives but also how close would you dare go to how, how small would you dare get that false positive to be sort of zero so it's fully accurate and then it sort of goes into the idea of fda um approval and and what does that mean for automation and ai how do you regulate that in the first instance right 
There was a lot of questions in there. There's a few bit there. Sorry, <laughs> my yes. mind was going through there. So apologies for that. So I guess the question you know, so, really was about was about false positives and how dare how far do you dare get to to that line? I think um, to answer that question, go back to your first question. Like, where are we, and and where are we in maturity, right? And we all know the you know the hype cycle of technology. Uh, it's the Gartner cycle. I think it's Gartner. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think we're at the point of the, the trough of, of disillusionment now with, with AI. We're at that bottom part where like we've had a lot of hype and a lot of overpromising. And now we're getting to the point of okay, okay, but this is is this really what AI is capable of today? Yeah, and it has a lot of value already, but mm. it, it can't deliver, you know, the big promises of replacing humans. Yeah. But then what can it deliver is indeed repetitive taking away repetitive tasks you can take away those repetitive tasks with a highly accurate ai and there have been all kinds of measures by different companies both small uh, legacy companies uh, and, and startups about how accurate their solutions are still there's a lot of cowboying in this space i think um, the certification doesn't necessarily say anything about the accuracy of a solution. So there's a lot of claims still, even with certification or just certification that's not complete. Uh, and the software still sold with certain claims that have been have not been certified that we see. Uh, but what we're trying to do constantly is improve the accuracy of the solution. However, it doesn't need to be perfect in the current situation. It needs yeah. to be at least as good or even better than uh, the human in this case. And the best solution is when you can combine the human and the AI together to get sort of the sum of both uh, where you have a much higher accuracy and a more efficient process. Yeah. And that's exactly what we are aiming for right now. So we already put that system into uh, clinical practice and we think it's more accurate. It's not only uh, confirmed by ourselves, but it's confirmed on a day-to-day -day basis by users. We're getting quotes, calls, emails from radiologists saying, hey, you know, you saved my ass here because I did not see this cancer. Or another one saying, hey, I did see that spot, but I couldn't measure it the way you did. And I didn't see it as a growing nodule. But then when we checked it based on your information, it showed that this indeed was a, a growing lung cancer. So everything there is about improving that false positive rate. So bringing yeah. down the false positives, increasing the uh, uh, sensitivity of a solution so that we don't miss any um, potential lung cancers, but also that we don't create too many you know, flags of things that aren't lung cancer, because that would always frustrate the radiologist or the clinicians as well. Yeah. So it's a fine line, basically, you know, you can make this, these systems more accurate, but at the same time, if you don't train them well, you can create too many false uh, alarms. So and with the certification, um, it's really about still the study where you have to demonstrate how good a radiologist or a clinician is with your AI, and they don't expect you to, to demonstrate a standalone system yet in, in something as complex as our field. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, it's, it's always a, a, a debate and, a, and something that I grapple with as well is, is how, how far can we go? Um, and, and also, what does what is the boss and depending it how do you regulate the, these you know these devices and it kind of goes back to our first the first question of what does success actually look like and it's very much seems a case that you 
feel success is assistive rather than replacement of, of, of it. And that's, that's where, once you understand that, you can really take the technology to its, its, to it, to its most powerful entity <clears throat> because you're not trying to replace anybody. You're not trying to do something that it can't really do. And once we understand that, we can, we can really make it as powerful as possible. Um, but I've had an absolutely fascinating time um, picking your brain and, and talking to you, Jerome, uh, about um, you know, the business case of, of, of AI and healthcare and what you guys are doing and the challenges you found in, in dealing with both the European market and the American market. Um, I noticed you, you mentioned a few times there some, some blog posts. Um, so just for anyone listening to this that would like to find out more, where can they find uh, your blog posts? Uh, just on our uh, company website, agents.com, that's where we have, a, a, in the menu bar, you can find articles and that's where you can find the latest on these these um, sort of uh, thought pieces. Um, and that's where I regularly rewrite more about, you know, indeed, as you was writing, the business case adoption, because there's a lot of hype on the AI part, but the other part of the sort of the business and the other part of the healthcare yeah. sector need to be covered for these kinds of um, you know, technology to, to be adopted. So that's where you can, at agents.com, that's where you can find um, all these pieces. Awesome, brilliant. Thank you very much. And I know I've gotten into as much detail probably in that area as possible. I can urge people to go and read those those articles. Um, so there is some really good piece of information there. Uh, but thank you, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to come on your uh, on your show and uh, looking forward to uh, to hear more people if there are any questions uh, don't feel afraid to to reach out 100 <laughs> percent. thank you thank you nick that finishes this episode for lifesight ai the podcast series i hope you got as much enjoyment out of that as i did join myself again in a couple of weeks where i'll be shining yet another light on a new area of AI within life sciences. In the meantime, follow Cypro on social media to hear about the latest updates on the series, but also on the roundtables and other work we do day to day. Please also like, share, tell a friend and comment on this podcast so that we can all promote the use of AI in life sciences together. Thanks for listening.